Thanks, Steve, for those, uh, for those prayers. And it's good sometimes to be reminded about some of the, uh, some of the traditional words that we perhaps all grew up with and uh, perhaps get a little bit lost in, uh, in the mists of time, as it were. So uh, thank you for bringing those. We're going to um, come now to our reading from the Bible um, before Richard comes to speak to us. We're going to um, turn to the New Testament, to the, um, the first, at least in the order that they're presented, uh, the first letter of, of Paul to the Romans, uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. Do you like to uh, turn that up in your uh, uh, Bibles or fire up your phones or tablets if you've got them? Um, I'm not sure if the words are going to come up on screen or not. But, um, yeah, let's uh, hear, these, uh, hear these words together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are being those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong." Amen. And Richard will uh, bring, the, uh, bring the word from that after we've uh, sung one more song. Um, so if you'd like to um, stand again and join with us in, in Christ alone, my hope is found.
can't type for peanuts. There's just nothing. You type messages and they go off and you read them back and you go, oh no, that's not what I meant at all. And that's been happening to me all week. I've been sending texts to people with words missing, the wrong word in them. And um, I think I've sent the wrong text to Steve for the reading this morning. So I've been doing it uh, all my life, actually. I, um, I, wrote, I wrote an email to, to my pastor many, many years ago because he wanted a list of something from me. So I did. I said, uh, dear Pastor Morris, just so you know, I've got a lust for you and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whoops. So, um, with that in mind, on, on that bombshell, I want to read from Romans chapter 5, first 11 verses. What we're going to be doing over the next few, uh, over the next month or two, we're going to be going through Romans 5, and we've got a lovely uh, collection of people from Bethel who are going to be ministering to us over the next uh, two months or so. And uh, I'm quite excited to hear. It's wonderful to have a church where there are so many people who are capable of presenting the word to the saints. And so, thankfully, you won't be hearing my voice after today for a long time, but we will be hearing what God has to say through the different members in Bethel, and that's a really good blessing to have. So we're going to be looking only at verse 1 today, this morning, but for context, going to read up to verse 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not this only, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And one will hardly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, we were, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for your word. Thank you for the wonder of your gospel. I pray, God, that this time will be profitable in your sight, that you will draw a straight line this crooked stick. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those passages where I just see every, there's headlines in every verse. It's just, it just shouts out so, such truth, such wonderful, awesome truth all the way through. But verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those of you who have been going to church for many decades may well know that in the Bible, when you see a therefore, you want to know what it's there for. Why does it say that? What's the therefore? Because it's there linking something that came in chapter 4 to what's happening now. 
In Romans 4, we were looking at Abraham's faith and how Abraham was considered right before God before he'd done anything, before he'd carried out any of his works. Now, there's key things in Abraham's life that we consider as his key works, maybe, like being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, a type of Jesus. It's a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. But Abraham was willing to do that. And we go, wow, Abraham was a tremendous man of faith that he was willing to do that. There's also circumcision, which was an act of faith, an act that, 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 that even to this day, the Jews and, and the Muslims actually, the Jews really hold on to that as a symbol and a sign of their community, of their faith, of their covenant with God. And so we can look at those acts and think, wow, yeah, Abraham was righteous, that he did all those things. But Paul's point in in, uh, Romans chapter 4 is that Abraham was considered right or righteous before God before he did all those things. The story is that God called Abraham out of his tent and he said, look at the stars. And you are going to have descendants more in number than the stars. You can count the stars and you can count your descendants. And it says that Abraham believed God. And that that is what was counted as righteousness before God, that he believed God. So that's the point that Paul's making in in chapter 4, or one of them. I think that's a big one. There's a few others, but that's the big one. And so Paul's saying that if Abraham was justified not by the works, but by belief in God, and belief in what God has has promised him, therefore, since, uh, since we have been justified by faith, that's how we've been justified. And if you think, well, that's a, that's a basic. Surely churches are just, they go on about this all the time. Everyone knows about that. But the, Paul seems to go on about it an awful lot. Why? Because we forget it so quickly. It can seep into our thinking that we've somehow got to make up for things like that. That, we don't, that God needs us to perform enough to get enough credits so that he will love us. And can see, I, I remember hearing it when I was young, and even saying things like that, like, oh, I missed church on Sunday, I'll go on Wednesday to make up for it. Why make up for it? As if God's there going, oh, I can't believe, I mean, you've got to go to a minimum two services a week, and you've only gone to one now. Wednesday, uh, well, I suppose that counts as three now. You know, what's, what's, the, what's going on with that? As if God is counting the points that you can earn. And so he's saying we've been justified by faith. It says in Romans 4, verses 4 to 5, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So religious devotions do not save us, yet they are a result of what comes. It's the result of what has happened. In chapter 4, verse 10, it says, How was it counted to Abraham? Was it before or after Abraham was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Abraham's faith serves as an example for both Jews and Gentiles. Abraham's faith held in the face of impossibilities. He hadn't had children at the time. And he was saying to God, you know, my my nearest kinsman, he lives in Damascus. He's going to get all my stuff. He's the closest one to me or someone in my household. I'm old. I'm too old to have children. But God said, hang on, this is not going to go like that. This is what it says in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham with this impossible promise that he's going to be a dad. 
It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We might not know how God is going to do it, but God doesn't require that we, we don't need to. He'll sometimes tell us how, he, how he's going to do things, but we trust in him and believe him. And Abraham is indeed set as an example from whom we can be encouraged because again in Romans 4 it says, but the words it was counted to him, that's in terms of it was counted to him for righteousness, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, and raised for our justification. So that's the therefore. So because we've got all this given to us, we can rejoice, we can be glad. He's saying, so, since we've been justified by faith, what does it mean to be justified by faith? What does it mean to be justified? Justification is a very real relief when there are high stakes at play. Justification is something that you can lose very easily on social media today. If you said something on the internet, Maybe during a, a foolish, youthful moment, you said something that, that, that wasn't very wise, that was downright unwise. You will have that hounding you for the rest of your life if someone finds it. And if you make a mistake now, you will be completely obliterated, cancelled is the word, because there is no forgiveness. There is never justification. We've already read, though, that God justifies the ungodly. But in, in today's world, justification is hard to find. It's easy to justify things in our lives, but to justify the completeness of our lives lived has to be a tall order. If I look back at my life and I look at all the things that I've done, justification seems hard. When there's a long list of aggravating circumstances surrounding a crime, for example, justification can be hard. Can you imagine a court case and the person's in the dock and they said this, this man took a child's bike, then he threw the bike through the shop window, then he stole some mobile phones, then he threw someone out of their car so he could steal it, and then he ran over an old lady while he was making his getaway. It's like we've got a bad thing following a bad thing following a bad thing, and it's just like, that's, that's impossible to justify that person. We can see all these things that he's done. A long litany of evil that just makes things worse and worse and worse. How can someone be justified in front of such a judge? How do politicians stand before the public eye? He said he wasn't at a party. Then he said he didn't know it was a party. Then he said it was a works do. Then it turned out it was a party. Then it turned out the party was at his house. And this was happening while people were breaking their hearts, not being able to see loved ones in the last days. You know, apart from that last one, it was almost a comedy. But we've seen that in today's world. That it's hard for people to stand justified when the guilt that's leveled against them is so long. It's not that I've got a lot of guilt. I've got long guilt. I've got a lifetime of guilt. Oh, yeah, but I can look at criminals who have robbed, uh, robbed shops. I can look at politicians who have lied through their teeth. Compounding factors cannot lead to someone being justified. But I'm no different. Just some highlights from my life if someone was going to talk about my life. He got angry at his parents when he was young because they wouldn't buy him the thing. Then he told his parents he hated them. Then he was horrible to his sister. Then he lusted after someone. 
Then he got older and coveted things other people had. While he was older and he just got a job, he spent all the money that he had buying things that he didn't need. And then he went into debt to buy more things he didn't need and money he didn't have. He spent time playing games that he could have spent before God, but he didn't have a, th a thought for God because he would rather play on his computer. Then after he got married, he argued with his wife and said horrible things in anger. Then he judged someone in his heart because they said something. I've got all that behind me. Surely what's written about such things are true. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's just like 10 minutes of my life, that list, although it's different parts. But if you look back at your life, you know, oh, I am a pretty good person. Well, except for that bit and that bit and that bit. I'm great. I'm a great person if you take out all the bad stuff I've done, except there's nothing left. But what it says here about the day of wrath, it puts us in a terrible situation. Especially if we look at Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The words of Jesus. There's a lifetime of wrath being stored up for me if my behavior and acts are anything to go by. That's what's stored up for me. But God has an answer to that situation. I've painted a very dark picture, but trust me, the truth is darker than what I've painted. But, but God has a solution to that. This faith that was Abraham's is what has been given to all those who believe in Jesus. If we do not stand condemned before God, it's not because of our works. If we do not stand before, uh, condemned before God, it's not because of our merit. If we do not stand be condemned before God, it is by faith. And this is faith that's been given to us. The picture, every time I think of the faith that God has given to us by which to live to him, I think of Christmas as a child where my mum and dad would give me money to buy Christmas presents for them. Here you go, the church is five pounds, and it's always a pen with my mum's name on it. <laughs> Can such a thing be afforded to someone like me who has a long litany of error behind me and no doubt in front of me as well? when I think of all that I've done, if I get down the nitty-gritty of what I've done, what I've said, who I've said things to, what I've done, the people have done things to, can I possibly expect that that's for me? As long as the window's closing, but the doors, it's all right. <laughs> the promise here is that we have been justified. That is, we stand before God, before this judge, we stand acquitted. It's like you've not done it. All those things I listed, I stand before God as though I haven't done it. There's a song to, uh, that used to be out in the charts a long time ago. It says, what have you done today to make you feel proud? If we were to ask ourselves, what have I done today to make myself acceptable to God? What have you done today to make you feel proud? The answer 
If I was going to answer that, it's nothing. Nothing, because anything that I've done in my own strength counts against me. But everything done in God is by faith and counted as righteous. But if you believe in Jesus, like we've told you in John 3.16, remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him, if we believe in Jesus, if your faith is in him and his means of being right before God, then you have been given the righteousness you need before that judge. You are justified. There are times I totally do not feel justified if Sarah has just washed the floor and I come home from work and I wear my shoes, I'm in big trouble. I am not justified before Sarah's. There's a rule in our house. After the floor's been cleaned, you're not allowed to walk on it for two days. You've got to float. <laughs> you know I love you. <laughs> you don't need to do anything to believe. Oh, hang on, now we're getting into some murky territory. I'm just going to touch the murky territory a little bit. I'm not going to spend too much time. But is belief a work then? Because he's saying, Richard, you don't have to, uh, I'm saying, you don't have to do anything. You can't do anything to be, to, to be right before God. You just believe and you go, ah, yes, well, you're believing. That's a work. Now you're asking me to do something. So you're not really right there, are you? That's a little bit of a twist there. You're telling me that I can't do something in order to be right before God, but then you're telling me you've got to do something. Is belief a work of merit to earn salvation, or is it a result of what God has done in opening someone's eyes? Look at the man born blind. He couldn't open his own eyes. But when, when his, his eyes were physically fixed, when he was healed, he could see. He couldn't not see, he was seeing. And that seeing gave him ability. And later on, as has been discussed before, Jesus came to him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man who was born blind, obviously knew who the Son of Man was, said, well, who is he? And Jesus said, it's me, effectively. And the man, and the man bowed down and worshipped him because he knew who he was, his eyes had been opened. Because he could see, he believed. And I think that to say that we must believe, it's not a work of merit, it's a result of seeing. Are you having to strain yourself to believe, for example, that I'm bald? Is that hard work to believe? You know, do you, is this something that, I know, I, I, I've got to work hard to believe this. We're going to do some studies on baldness. No, you just know because you can see. And, and this is why we are so dependent on God to even open our eyes. I need God to make me unblind. If, if I want a better phrase. I need him to open my eyes. Otherwise, I can't even believe. This is how much we depend on him. Likewise, the gift of faith opens your eyes and you see that the gospel is true. Some might say that faith is something that you come to, that you have to work hard for, like a conclusion that is the reward of much thinking. And for a lot of people, they have put a lot of thought into it. But ultimately, the delivery of faith into someone's heart is from God. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The works of merit do not produce faith. It is a gift. Don't get me wrong, works come after because we've been saved, because we've been justified. Works don't come for us to be justified, but because we are. The acts did not make God, uh, Abraham right with God. It was his faith in God. 
so we have been justified by faith. So what? So what? It says in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The story of the angels, what they were proclaiming is peace on earth, which either we need to understand it or is the biggest joke in history, because there isn't any. We may initially think that there's no peace on earth, so the angels are singing nice wishes, which is what tends to happen at Christmas. Best wishes to everyone. Where, where are these wishes? Did, when someone sends me a card that says, best, wish, best Christmas wishes, have they at some point sat at home thinking, I wish, I wish Richard would have a nice Christmas? You know, what, what is that? I have no idea how that hangs together. But they sing of peace on earth, according to the text, peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. We've already seen that Abraham pleased God, was made right before God, that is, by believing in him. If Abraham pleased God by the faith that God gave Abraham, then Abraham was at peace with God. <clears throat> this peace that the, the angels are singing about with God is the peace between the people with whom God is pleased and God. When we think about Abraham, when he, was, when he had this peace with God, when he was righteous before God, the people and the nations around Abraham were not at peace with God. The people against whom Abraham took a stand were not at peace with God. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were not at peace with God. The people of Canaan were not at peace with God. While there was no peace among the people of earth, Abraham had peace with God. This is the promise for us. It's chaos in the world at the moment, isn't it? It's absolute bedlam. But we've got peace with God because we've been justified by faith in Jesus. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The lawbreakers in the news are not yet at peace with God. I say not yet because we want them to be at peace with God, don't we? I, you know, it said Jesus came to die for the ungodly. So when I see people on the telly who I think are you know, bad eggs, I want them to know God because I'm a bad egg. The leaders vying for war on false pretenses aren't at peace with God. We want them to know peace with God. The unrighteously rich, powerful, and proud who abuse their power, they aren't at peace with God. We want them to be at peace with God, but they're not. And yet sinners who trust in Jesus, they're at peace with God because they've been changed. They've been transformed. They've been justified before God. This peace with the one who matters is a great thing. That God would stoop down and speak to Abraham is wonderful. But that God would stoop down and reveal himself to us is even more wonderful. He's even stooped down to speak to people in Kumturk. That's awesome. How low. But it's true that, he, that God himself has come down to justify us. Unable to justify ourselves. God came down to us to rescue us and reconcile us to himself. Where there was enmity, there is now peace. Think about it. If you're in court, if, if you've committed the crime, if you haven't, the only person you want to be justified in front of is that judge. You don't care what the press says as, as much. You don't care as much about what, what friends might say because what they think doesn't affect your ultimate destiny of whether you're going to go to prison or not. It's what the judge says that matters. What the judge says affects whether you're bound in prison or whether you're released. And there's all sorts of people all around us who will not like us, who will not like the message. There's chaos going on all around us. But the one judge that we need to be at peace with, we are at peace with through Jesus. 
There's just a one judge we need to worry about. Are you at peace with God? It says also it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, through Jesus Christ. God didn't just wink at our sins and say, well, it's actually, don't worry about it. It's okay. Don't worry, Rich. I know you've done all those bad things, but it's all right. I understand. It's not like that at all. Very often, I, I heard this description recently um, saying that God is often portrayed as a doting grandfather where who, no matter what the grandchildren do, he's like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. It's all right. It's all right. He loves us. He loves us more than any grandfather possibly can, but he's also just. And so he didn't just wink at our sins here, it's all right, don't worry about it. God actually did something in order to bring this peace. Very often when, you, when you're fixing a computer, I used to fix computers a long time ago, I haven't done many anymore, but I, when I'm fixing reports or whatever in work, the worst kind of situation is when something fixes itself. You've had this problem on the computer, it's just failing constantly, constantly, and so they say, Rich, can you come and have a look at my computer? So I go along, have a look at the computer, turn it off, back on, just like they've done, they've been turning it off and back on, but when I turn it off and back on, for some reason, the computer's fixed. I don't know how it's fixed. It just seems to work. And they always say, you know, they used to say, oh, you've got the magic touch, or this or that. But I'm walking away thinking, that could break again. That could easily break again. And if they know, what's, know the situation, they realize this computer could break again. And if all God has done is just uh, don't worry about it and put it to one side, it can break again. But God has done something with our sin. He's taken our sin and put it somewhere. This peace isn't obtained through some shifty shenanigans or loopholes that haven't been closed yet. God didn't break any laws to save us. He, it's, he, there's, a, there's an old hymn that says that he kissed a guilty world. He kissed the guilty world and he's shown justice to us. God is open and clear about how he has brought and bought about our peace. Everything that God has done is legal and legit and no law has been broken because he did it through Jesus Christ. He did it through Jesus. This is something that is brought about by someone. A person has brought this justification. A person has brought this peace that you have before God. This justification is, a, is achieved through works of merit. It is. I didn't know that. Our salvation is achieved through works of merit, just not ours. It's someone else's. Jesus' works. We do have a works-based salvation, to use a technical term, but it's not our works. It's Jesus. This acquittal we enjoy has been brought about by someone else. This person, this Jesus, is blameless. He kept God's law. If you look at, at his history, he, has, he hasn't got the same history as me, where he's messed up and misspent resources and just been stupid or horrible. His, this is Jesus. is pure and perfect and blameless. There's nothing wrong with him at all. This is the means by which we have salvation, because this is the Jesus who died as though he'd done everything that I've done. He'd taken the blame for it all. This is Jesus, the righteous one, who died on behalf of unrighteous people. This is Jesus of whom God said, this is my beloved son. Sorry, beloved son. This is some more, you know. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This justification that God has achieved for us is not through a mere prophet. God didn't say, oh, I'll send a prophet. Have you ever thought about this? For people who say that Jesus isn't God. There's a verse in there, I'm not going to take too much, I'm being very careful to not go any further into Romans chapter 5, because I know others are going to be dealing with it. There's one verse, I just love this. It says, God showed his love to us in that he sent his son to die for us. 
If Jesus isn't God, then that verse means nothing. It's like, I love you all so much, I'm going to ask someone to give you a bunch of money. I, where's my sacrifice? How's that my love for you if I'm asking someone else to give you something? But God's love was demonstrated in that Jesus Christ died for us. If Jesus has to be God or that verse doesn't carry much weight. How many of us have a boss? How many of us have a boss who has a boss? And how many of us know that the higher up the chain of command goes, the more weight that boss carries? See, this Jesus isn't just Jesus, but is Jesus the Lord. The position of this Jesus is the highest of all. Of all the people that you'd send to die for horrible people, people who are in rebellion against God, would you send the highest of all? The very highest of all. There must be someone in between that God could have sent that's more appropriate. But no, he sent the highest of all to meet us, the lowest of all. The position is this. There is nobody higher up the chain than Jesus But not only is he the Lord, the master, but he's our Lord. He is our master. This is Jesus who said of himself before Abraham was, I am. This is Jesus of whom the the apostle John wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But here's the thing, before I can say Jesus is our Lord, I need to be able to say that Jesus is my Lord. In a sense, he is everyone's Lord because he is Lord. But here we're talking about an intimacy of a close relationship. See, through Jesus, you and I have peace with God. He's my Lord. He, is, he therefore has the right to do these things, govern my life, bring things out of my life, take things out of my life, lift me high, put me low, bring me joy, bring me sorrow, tell me what to do, chastise me, show me his love. He also has the exclusive right to lead me in knowledge of himself, lead me in knowledge of his will, open my eyes to see what I've never seen before, wipe away my tears of sorrow, play the joyful music to which I will dance, tell me the joys he has in store for me. Because he's my Lord, he's got all those. Do I begrudge him these rights? He's my Lord, he's my master. How dare I even think of begrudging him? And if, but if I'm honest, there are some begrudgings in there. Oh, I'm so tired after work. I just want to sit down and watch a chill-out YouTube video, but I've got church. Am I begrudgingly like that? Sometimes there are little echoes of that begrudgingness. Oh, no, here's the condemnation. No, here's the praise because I've got someone who's justified me. I've still got a saviour. It's not just for way back when I, when I gave my heart to the Lord, which he doesn't need because he wants to give me another heart anyway. It's not for way back then. This is for today and tomorrow and the future. He's got our sins covered. You are good with God because of Jesus. In this context, the Lordship of Jesus is something we recognize and in such we rejoice. It says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's our Lord. But a huge part of knowing that he is my Lord is knowing that he is our Lord. If Jesus is your Lord and Jesus is my Lord, then he's our Lord. This may seem obvious, but think about it. This brings us closer together. This brings us closer to each other. Because in this lordship, we're not just friends. We're not just people who have the same hobby. We are brothers and sisters. 
because in Jesus we've been made children of God. If you're a child of God and I'm a child of God, that means you've got a common father. So we are brothers and sisters. It's because Jesus is our Lord that we are right to think of each other as brothers and sisters. It's because Jesus is our Lord that the enemy wants to drive us apart in enmity against one another. The enemy wants me to hate you, wants you to hate other people, and wants you to hate me, and wants us to hate each other. He's probably quite happy if you only hate one or two people. That's enough. If there's anyone in Bethel who really you just cannot get on, you can't, you, do you know what they said? Do you know what they said as they were going out of the church, the way they looked at me? Oh, that's what the enemy loves. We can think of all manner of reasons to not like people. Even all the way down to they chew their mouth open. They sound like a cement mixer when they eat. I don't want to sit next to them when we have a church meal. Oh, yeah, man. We've got loads of reasons to be disliked and to dislike. But we have a Lord over us all. We have one Father over us all. We belong to each other. If you are trusting in Jesus, and if I am trusting in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. We need to hold on to that. That's why as we grow in grace, as we grow in knowing who God is, growing in the knowledge of Him, we've all from all different backgrounds, all different abilities, all different talents, all different interests, but we have that one Father who brings us together, and we have to be on our guard in our hearts for that. Because the slightest thing, slightest thing might even start off as a joke, but the slightest thing can make me dislike someone, and that's the beginning of big problems. We need to, when, as we're going through Romans 5, we remember that this is all describing a boat that we're all in together. Do you know Jesus today? Are you hoping that you've done enough to get through whatever is after this life? Or do you know that you've done enough to get through what is, whatever is after this life. I saw an interview with someone who was convinced that he had done enough to get through the pearly gates, as he called them. This man said that he's given so much money to charity. I understand he used to give about between 70 and 90% of his income to charity. And that he said that when he comes to those pearly gates, if anyone was going to try and stop him, he would just point to all the charity work that he'd done and he would be let in to heaven. However, I think that Jimmy Savile, unless he turns to Jesus for forgiveness, will find that that wasn't enough. We think that because we're part of the brotherhood of man, that we're all sort of humans, that we're all okay. But the situation is this, we need to be the brotherhood of Jesus. We need to be depending on him. So that on, those, on, those, on that day when you approach the pearly gates, and if someone, does, if someone were to say you can't come in, you say, I'm on. I'm not here because I'm good. I'm here because Jesus is good. It's because of him. He's the only reason I can come in. And go, well, yeah, if you come, actually looking at the book, I can see all your righteousness. It's actually Jesus is. So yeah, in you come. It's because it's his he is your Lord. He, he is your Lord now. Jesus is your Lord now. You just don't recognize it yet. 
But if you continue to refuse to recognize him, the day will come when you do recognize him, and that'll be too late because that'll be the day of judgment. You don't want that to be the day that you believe. Jesus died to take away the wrath of God which stands against you for all your offenses against God. And Jesus rose again to a new life so that you can enjoy and experience a new life, a new beginning, a new start, living right before your master. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You may say, <laughs> you don't know the life that I've lived. You don't know the reputation that I've got. You have no idea of the things that I've done. And I'm sure that there are people, possibly online, possibly here, who have done things they can't possibly imagine. But God can. God sees, what, sees it, and he says that if you trust in him, if you trust in Jesus, he died for you. You may think I've been preaching an angry God, but here we see a God who loves you enough to send you his son to die for you, to be reconciled to him. It's not a case of, right, okay, I'm not going to punish you, just get to your room and, and play with all your toys in your room. It's not, it's, I reconcile you to me. God wants us reconciled to him, to be close to him, held by him. Not to just turn up in heaven and play football or whatever it is you want to do, but to be with him. That's the big selling point of heaven, that he is there. The number of times that God repeats in the Old Testament to, when giving the law unto the people, that I will be your God and you will be my people. Will you put your trust in Jesus today? There is so much joy in this one verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much comfort, so much assurance, so much to be glad in. And if you are looking for that shelter, to know that you are right before God, if your conscience is bothering you because you know that you're not where you ought to be, you know that, like it says in Romans chapter 1, you are suppressing righteousness. You are suppressing the truth, sorry, in unrighteousness. You're hiding the truth, you're hiding the fact that you are not right with God with more and more sin, more and more interest to put before God. If that's where you are, know this, you need to know Jesus and the offer is for you. Put your trust in Jesus who died for your sins. Make no bones about it. You've got sins in your life. We've all needed forgiveness. We all need forgiveness still. With that, we have it all in Jesus. Please, if you want to speak to one of the church leaders, please do. If you know someone who's a Christian, they can help you, please speak to them. But ultimately, your trust is in Jesus, who himself chose to die for everyone who believes in him. Amen.